This is Jordy Shepard from Canada, uh, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control. Safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by 10 Barrel Brewing. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Hope you're having a great day out there. It's November 1st, 2022, and there is some snow up high in the mountains in many locations throughout the western U.S. and Canada. I've been seeing some photos of people riding already, and looks pretty good in many locations. Just remember, if there's enough snow to ride, there's enough snow to slide. So start your good habits of mountain travel in the winter backcountry environment right now with your first ski tour of the season. Even though many avalanche centers are not yet putting out avalanche forecasts, there still is avalanche hazard in the early season, even pre-forecast season for these avalanche centers. So take it easy out there. Not only avalanche hazards, but early season low tide as well. You never want to end your season before it really begins. So be careful out there early season. I know everybody's chomping at the bit to make some turns or get out for a ride, Um, but just take it easy. Also remember if you're skiing or riding in a closed ski area early season, mountain operations and ski patrol are working hard to get those ski hills ready for you. So please respect all closures at ski resorts um, in this early season and try and give them a break, stay out of their way, and respect their hard work. As we wrap our way into November here, there's some more regional snow and avalanche workshops to let you know about. Um, coming into into this next week, we've got the Utah Snow and Avalanche Workshop procession on November 2nd, and then again November 7th and 9th. The South Central Alaska Avalanche Workshop is on November 4th, and Northern Rockies Snow and Avalanche Workshop in Whitefish is November 11th through 12th, with the Ben Saw Workshop as well on November 12th. On November 17th through 19th, there's the Eastern Snow and Avalanche Workshop. So whether you're attending virtually or in person, check out your regional Snow and Avalanche Workshop. Additional support for this episode is provided by Athletic Greens. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't always take the best care of myself that I could. And this is probably especially so during the winter season when I get super busy and I'm traveling around. Sometimes I just don't eat the best. Sometimes I don't get quite enough sleep as I'd like. We all get busy. Well, I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens, and it's the nutritional insurance I need for when I get busy and maybe I don't take the best care of my body. It's got 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens give you better gut health, more energy, an optimized immune system, and much more. 
My favorite part of it is it's so simple. You just put one scoop in some water in the morning, shake it up, drink it down. You're done. I don't have to keep track of six or seven different supplement pills. I just take one scoop of AG1 right when I wake up before my coffee on an empty stomach and I'm set for the day. I've been reaping the benefits of AG1 and I think you could too. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com avalanche hour. Again, that's athleticgreens.com avalanche hour to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Today's episode features a great interview with Jordy Shepard. Jordy and I chat about his career. He's a fully certified IFMGA guide. He's the vice president of the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides. He's an ambassador for Backcountry Access. Throughout this interview, we'll chat about Jordy's career, and we chat quite a bit about best practices with avalanche rescue these days. So as we know, with all aspects of the snow and avalanche industry, uh, we're constantly evolving best practices, best way to be efficient with avalanche rescue, and that's really what we dive into uh, on this interview. Jordy talks about the strike team shoveling method as well as some strategic probing and gives a couple accounts of some rescues, some avalanche rescues that he's been a part of throughout his career. I know you're going to enjoy this episode with Jordy Shepard. Here we go. All right. Welcome to the show, Jordy. How are you doing today? Oh, good. How are you, Caleb? I'm doing great. Thank you. And you're calling in from Canmore? Yeah, Canmore, Alberta, Canada. Yeah. And so you live and work there in Canmore, and and you wear quite a few hats. You're the vice president of the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides. You're heavily involved in curriculum development with Avalanche Search and Rescue in Canada. You're an IFMGA guide. You're a realtor. You're an ambassador for Backcountry Access. I'm sure I missed a few things there. You're a father. And uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit more about who Jordy Shepard is. Yeah, I try and uh, get get pretty involved with a lot of initiatives. Sometimes I probably bite off a bit too much, but you only get one chance to go through this as far as we know. So might as well just try and do it all. I also, uh, I've been with Canmore Fire Rescue with the fire department here in Canmore for about, I guess, a little over 10 years now. So I uh, I help with calls there just part-time. And uh, I've recently joined Columbia Valley Search and Rescue in Invermere, where my wife and I have a flower farm that we're starting. And we're down there. It's only about two hours drive from here. And we're down there quite a bit. So I joined the, the volunteer search and rescue team for Mountain Sar. You also have a bit of a history with Parks Canada, hey? Yeah, my uh, my Parks Canada history goes back three generations. My grandfather was a park warden in the Banff, uh, Lake Louise, Yoho, uh, Glacier National Park in Canada, at Rogers Pass there, um, as well as up in uh, Waska Sioux in Saskatchewan, Prince Albert National Park. And, uh, and my father worked for Parks Canada as a uh, as the head of finance in Jasper National Park, but he was a he was also a ski racer um, on the Canadian Alpine Ski Team and represented Canada. Went to the Olympics in '68 in Grenoble. 
Oh, cool. So what are some of your early memories of, of exploring in the mountains and specifically in the winter backcountry environment? Did your grandfather and your father get you into skiing and climbing at a, at a young age? Yeah, we definitely, my, my brothers and sister and I have got two brothers and a sister. Uh, we, we all got into skiing quite young. Um, at one point, uh, we lived at Big White Ski Resort, like right up at the resort by Kelowna. And uh, that's where we learned how to ski when we were quite young. And then we, we did move to Jasper. And uh, I didn't really, I wouldn't say I got a ton into the backcountry side of things, except for probably mountain biking um, in, in Jasper, going to, going to school there. But uh, we we did do a trip pretty much every year into the backcountry of Banff, where my grandfather used to be uh, stationed in as a backcountry district warden in Banff Park, and uh, he he had left that post at, at at the time and was the chief park warden of Yoho National Park. But we still had access to to go back uh, at times to use the warden cabin there because we we're we were warden family, and then. Uh, and then we lost that, but we still went back camping. We'd take this, uh, so this is this is summer based, obviously, but uh, it was definitely connecting to the park. We uh, had a World War One replica ambulance cart that was towed by our five foot tall Shetland pony, uh, and we would pack it up with all of our camping gear for two weeks, including I think one one trip we actually had the cat in in on the top of the the cart <laughs> we took the cat with us into the back country too and uh so we take all of our food and and uh and fuel and head back for two weeks of camping in in banff national park every summer and we'd we'd have to hold the the cart back on the downhills and help push on the uphills because it was so loaded down and uh yeah that was a definitely early early memory of being connected to the national park system and then, uh, and basically through ski racing, um, yeah, we, we gained a love of mountains, although it was dangling off a chairlift and then kind of into just finishing high school, I started to get into more backcountry stuff, climbing and, and, uh, backcountry ski touring. And so what, what kind of came first? Was it, uh, your work in the, in the parks or kind of a, a track towards mountain guiding? Yeah, well, I, I knew that I, I wanted, when I finished high school, I w wanted to become a park warden. It was what my grandfather had done, and I, I knew it was an avenue. felt quite fortunate about that. So I started working for Parks Canada uh, on the, the trail crew in Jasper Park, and then uh, and then moved into uh, wildland firefighting uh, as as kind of a summer summer job. And then I went to university at the time to become a park warden, you park wardens did everything. Now they've kind of specialized just into law enforcement um, in the national park system in Canada. But uh, we we kind of did everything back back in the day: um, wildlife work, wildfire work, rescue, law enforcement, uh, scientific studies, all that kind of stuff. So you had to have a bachelor of science degree from universe, university. So uh, yeah, I chose to go to university, got a bachelor of science. Uh, out of Kamloops, um, BC, and uh, and during that time, kind of did a whole bunch of backcountry trips, and probably didn't spend quite enough time at university, uh, but I, I got through that degree there, and then uh, joined uh, first the BC uh, provincial 
ranger service for one summer to get some more law enforcement experience and then applied for the national park warden service and got in to there and so then very quickly i I pretty much decided i was going to become a a mountain rescue specialist which uh, does in canada generally require or in the national park system require that you become a member of the guide association and become a become a mountain guide so i started that process um, as i started with parks canada there and yeah, I started in about 2000 and finished the guide courses, became a mountain guide in about 2005. And uh, yeah, I worked for National Parks Service for, for a number of years there. Jordy, any, any rescues that kind of pop out in your head as pivotal moments within your career that sort of set you on a path to refining some curriculum, especially geared towards avalanche rescue? Yeah, particular to Avalanche Rescue, I was working at, at Rogers Pass in Glacier National Park as a warden uh, and as one of the two uh, visitor safety specialists there. Um, I was I was definitely junior to the other the other rescue uh, rescue leader at the time. Uh, but um, I'm not sure if you recall or some of your listeners might recall the Strathcona Tweedsmere School accident at Connaught Creek in 2003. Um, and that, that was February 1st, 2003. And so I ended up being the rescue branch director there. We use the incident command system and, uh, I was on site, uh, mostly not because I was the most experienced, but because I was the most experienced, uh, um, with skis in the helicopter when, when the helicopter landed. Uh, so, um, Eric, my, uh, my peer, uh, went back to the incident command post because he didn't have his skis um, in the helicopter, and I ended up uh, uh, being the the rescue branch director there. And yeah, it's um, yeah, it's kind of hard to describe how how life changing a situ- uh, situation like that is with uh, fourteen school kids, three adult chaperones, all involved in a, a sizable avalanche in a tight valley. That was a pretty pivotal moment in the. Uh, visitor safety and avalanche safety program that's been implemented there since. Yeah, there and and everywhere, the recommendations that came out of that accident, you know, was a very unfortunate, uh, hard-hitting accident um, with loss of life of, of seven school kids and just hugely traumatic to their parents and and all everyone at the school. And then all of us that were involved in the rescue event, um, yeah, I've definitely been have long-standing trauma from that, uh, but there was some good that came out of it. Um, it changed legislation in the national parks to uh, to basically disallow custodial groups, so minors, youth that are not in the care of their parents, in being in that type of terrain in the future. Um, and that's kind of a big deal to change change legislation on the national level. And then further out of that, because because they had to rate the terrain, the avalanche terrain exposure scale, um, became, uh, was launched and it's, it's currently, uh, just being refined again now, almost 20 years later. Right. Yeah. I just, I just saw a great presentation by Grant Statham at the Wyoming snow and avalanche workshop, um, concerning the, the eights there. And, and it seems like it, the avalanche terrain exposure scale is spreading throughout North America. And I'm, I'm very excited to see it kind of come down south into the states a little bit more and being incorporated into more guidebooks and and becoming more commonplace down here as well. 
Yeah, it's kind of a natural progression. Um, yeah, which was spurred by unfortunate events, but it uh, it basically it's like climbing. We've had climbing grades forever, uh, alpine grades that speak to difficulty and exposure and danger, and uh, same with ice climbing. Uh, and so, why not do that for ski routes? Right, paddling as well. Right. Yep. Whitewater yep. paddling. Whitewater paddling has grades. Yeah, so it was uh, just something that I guess we'd kind of all overlooked for for a long time is like, you know, for people to understand the kind of risk and the, the difficulty they're getting into, um, you know, especially with regard to avalanches and glaciated terrain and complexity of the terrain. Um, yeah, it's, it's nice to see that uh, we've gone that direction. And so when and why and where did you get more involved in um, AVSAR and, and maybe give us a little bit of background about, uh, the curriculum that's currently in place within traditional avalanche education in Canada regarding, uh, the specific topic of avalanche search and rescue, both for recreationists and professionals. Yeah. Well, in 2007, uh, there was a project struck with, uh, federal funding in Canada. Uh, I was a subject matter expert working for Parks Canada at the time, and uh, we had a meeting in Vancouver and, and developed the curriculum uh, that became, it went through several iterations. It was initially a, an AFSAR response course. Uh, then it became more um, individual skills based like it currently is right now. AFSAR advanced skills is what we deliver at the professional level. And uh, we're just, I just met last month um, at the Canadian Avalanche Association office in Revelstoke, and we're just launching on a, a new two-year project uh, to uh, redevelop the current AFSAR program into uh, its next iteration, which is quite exciting. And what, can you give us a little glimpse into what that might look like? Yeah, well, it, we we just had our first meeting, so can't really speak to too much about how it's going to look. Um, but we are looking at kind of the progressions right now between the Avalanche Operations 1 and the Avalanche Operations 2. Um, it's a prerequisite for the Avalanche Operations 2 to do your AFSAR Advanced Skills course, um, which is uh, best practices internationally. And uh, it's a great course. Um, what we're finding is that we probably want to have something uh, ahead of the Avalanche Operations 1 uh, just for for vetting skills um, for AVSAR, we there are a number of of people who take the Avalanche Operations One who don't move on to the Operations Two, and so they could be working at a ski hill or highways operation or tail guiding for a long time, potentially their whole careers, and and never have really any um, specific AVSAR training. Um, so we're we're looking at trying to capture that. Um, and then, yeah, and then and then have an advanced progression beyond that. So kind of think uh, team member and team leader kind of levels. Sure. You work with a lot of guides and search and rescue organizations. And so over, over your experience with that, what are some things that you felt like have been missing in the last five years? Um, well, I think it's just there. there's constant progression in in the avalanche search and rescue world it seems like uh you know we we kind of took it for granted that we would just grab a shovel and start shoveling for the longest time uh for long before i was doing this kind of stuff and the reality is we still we still shovel 
um, but it's being more, uh, yeah, more strategic about it uh, so that you're doing the least amount of shoveling. Uh, humans are, are naturally kind of lazy beings, and uh, this is, these are events that require quite a bit of effort when there's, when there's shoveling happening. And so, yeah, if we can be more, uh, more strategic with it and with our effort, for example, then, uh, yeah, it just, it just will uh, make it better, not only for us as rescuers, it'll make it better for the person who's under the snow. At some point it was, it was, uh, pretty commonplace that, that like you said, people just took it for granted that you'd, you know, pinpoint your buried subject with a probe and just start shoveling, right? And then we figured out that, that it doesn't work to, to just shovel straight down to the probe, right? And so the, the technique was to come downhill about one and a half times the burial depth and start digging into the slope, right? So you're not just like if you were at a beach and you just start digging into the sand straight down, all the sand just falls back into the hole. And so um, the common practice was to uh, make a platform shoveling all the snow downhill and as you had more rescuers fan out into a bit of a V um, so that you're removing all that snow downhill into the sides and you had a nice platform um, when you did reach the tip of the probe and the buried subject to extricate that that person. Recently uh, you, you amongst others came up with the strike team shoveling technique and I was curious why that came about and what you thought could be improved upon from the current best practice. So the the term strike team shoveling that I coined is uh, it's it's an attempt to try and get more people uh, interoperable within the incident command system and in the incident command system in North America that we use for emergency response in pretty much all sectors of emergency response. It was developed through uh, the wildfire uh, service initially in the U.S. and has kind of branched out to pretty much all emergency operations um, and in in North America at least. And uh, it's just a it's just a way of structuring the the response and, and incident and uh, making sure not too many people are reporting uh, to you as one one leader because um, it can become overwhelming. And so strike teams are a group of like resources in the incident command system. So it's kind of a natural thing to, to call this strike team shoveling, just like you would call it a probe strike team um, if it's a group of people probing because they're all doing the same type of thing. And so... Uh, the idea is that we can become more interoperable. So if I get out of a helicopter at an accident, then there's a group of, say, recreational uh, snowshoers. And I can ask them, have you, have you done strike team shoveling? Have you been trained to do that? And they say yes, then I can actually plug them in with the rest of my team members. And we can have more interoperability there and less kind of while somebody's under the snow or more, or more than one people are under the snow, um, taking time to say, well, this is how you do it. Uh, we can, we can all have kind of the same understanding and just plug in like Lego blocks into the system. Um, so that's kind of the, the terminology side of it. Really strike team shoveling is, it's actually pretty much nothing new. It's, it's using some stuff that was developed, uh, by, by, uh, Genswine, st some stuff that was developed by Edgerly, um, 
back in the day and, and backcountry access. They, they coined it uh, strategic shoveling. And really, if you, if you go back to Genswine's method in 2007, I believe it was published, um, the Apex V snow conveyor, it's, it's, there was, I think it was misconstrued on how to line up and how to rotate there because it was done with these confusing static diagrams and as opposed to a just simple video demonstration, which yes, in 2007, we didn't, I would say we, we didn't all have as easy access to video production as we do nowadays with 4k video phones in our pockets. Um, so to be fair, <laughs> but, uh, it, it created a lot of confusion. People thought that they would line, oh, they would line up as per the diagrams kind of in this zigzag formation, creating a V fanning out, but then they weren't, weren't really understanding that they were actually supposed to move from there back and forth across the cross section of the snow conveyor, uh, corridor there that they were digging down in. And so it, and then just the, the whole rotation method was was quite confusing where position, I can't even remember what it was now, position one went position three or something like that. And and so we, we realized through instructing the AFSAR uh, skills program in Canada to professionals, we could have a group at the start of the course and have them line up at the front of the classroom and and say, okay, now rotate, and they're just pretend shoveling, and then there'd be this discussion about, well, no, you're supposed to go over here, and I'm supposed to go over there, and and it's just not very efficient when people are having a discussion that have lots of air above the surface, and meanwhile, the person under the snow is thinking, can you can you get your shit together, and and uh, just shovel in a in a cohesive way, and so it, it it's just kind of a refinement um, that has happened in Europe and and in Canada. Um, for, for how we line up and how we rotate. And there, there's different schools of thought uh, right now over on, you know, whether you rotate, you know, the, the person comes out the back and goes to the front or goes out the front and goes to the back. And when you do that, but the main thing is that you're kind of lining up in a line. You're, you're not, you're trying to shovel as little snow at the front as possible, widening out, but only to about one and a half, two meters wide and then parallel sidewalls. And you're you're rotating probably every two to four minutes. The first or second person can call the rotations um, because the first person might have their eye on the prize and think I, I got this and I'm just about down down the probe. And that's the other thing uh, that we're we're kind of going back to is you're shoveling right down the probe, uh, the first person, um, if you get a probe strike, because um, that's where the person's located. And there's there was lots of discussion and concerns over the years about trampling air pockets and and uh, being on top of the person but the reality is the person under the snow really wants you to get down to them so um, and you're probably step back a little bit from the probe anyways when you're shoveling because you're not standing right beside the probe so just to be clear instead of moving down slope one and a half times the burial depth you're starting right at the probe starting to dig down towards the bottom of the probe yes yep and we'd only recommend that you are are digging, uh, starting downslope of the probe and angling toward the probe tip if you don't feel you have enough shovelers for the probe, for the burial depth that you're up against. Um, mm -hmm. So then you want to start a, a little ways away, about say one and a half times the, the burial depth on your probe strike, and then start digging towards the probe tip and down with, with maybe mm -hmm. you feel like you wish you had five shovelers and you've only got two, for example. Sure. 
yeah, just, just practicing and, and, and rotating. It's the kind of thing where you can do this at the trailhead just before you head out, just say, okay, is everybody good with the way we're going to shovel if we need to shovel? And, you know, whether you're doing it slightly different than another group in the end, as long as you're doing it in a concerted effort and manner, then, uh, that's going to be what's best for the person under the snow. So just talk a little bit about the spacing of rescuers. Say if you do have four to five rescuers in the strike team shoveling. Yeah. So that's gone through some evolutions as well. Uh, currently, uh, we're instructing the first person has their shovel, um, at their hip, uh, and extended shovel shaft to the probe. And that way you're starting, in, in the natural spot where you're just going to start shoveling in front of you and down the probe instead of right at the probe for lining up. So one probe length, one shovel length three away from the probe uh, to the downslope side, and then the next person, another extended shovel length um, in line uh, and so so forth down, down the, the line there to initially line up and then doing re- realigning if you need to uh, for your spacing, if you're finding that you're getting too, too squished up, which is more normal than getting too far apart. Right. And, and for the listeners out there, like Jordy was saying, you know, the videos that, that are online through Backcountry Access's website are a great way to follow up on some of the description that Jordy's given here. So you can find that in the show notes and, and make sure to check that out. I understand initially we're moving the snow to the sides, right? Just in, until you have enough of a trench where it becomes uh, a bit more work to get that snow moved up over the berm, right? Until you have a trench. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. We're recommending that you initially shovel to the side until you're kind of one or two shovel blades deep. And when you're starting to lift that snow up and out to the side, then start to convey it back to the person behind you. And really, this is one of the things you're kind of amped up at that point, obviously, and you're not conveying the snow for people back from you and uh, being disruptive (laughs) with your shoveling. You want to just put it next, you know, behind you to the person behind you. And you're doing this kind of snow bucket brigade um, all the way back and, and out. And the natural progression then is that the person at the front is doing the bulk of the cutting blocks and going down the probe. And then as snow gets moved back to position two, position two is is trying to dig down as well, but is conveying position one snow back. And then position three and four and five, by the time you get back to there, they're mostly just dealing with sweeping the snow that's coming to them from the people in front of them. They're still trying to dig down wherever they can, but they really don't have a lot of time to do that. And so you get this angling ramp going, uh, going down um, to the probe tip which gives you a, a, a reasonably good working area for when you get to the subject. Mm-hmm. So many shovels these days have, my favorite shovels have a hoe mode, right? Where you can turn the shaft at a 90 degree angle to the shovel blade. Um, do you see that as, as being more efficient? And, and what positions within the strike team shoveling would that be most appropriate to use? Yeah, so for for in avalanche debris, uh, which is what we're talking about here, I wouldn't think there'd be too many scenarios where you'd actually want to be in hoe mode, um, because you if you're at the back and you're rotating forward as as you move forward in, in you don't want to have to be switching your shovel from hoe mode to regular shovel mode, 
Uh, so probably best for everybody in in kind of a standard avalanche situation. We were in debris. Everybody just be in regular shovel mode. You could think about uh, training where somebody sets up in hole mode at the back where you're not digging down as much and they're they're sweeping the snow out the back that comes from several people in front of them. But then you have to discuss, okay, ahead of time, I'm going to be leaving my shovel there. Everybody else is going to leave their shovel in regular shovel mode. But then you might end up, unless you have all the same shovel, using someone else's shovel and you go from a D-grip to a T-grip or, uh, you know, you don't know the the braking strengths, you know, of your, you know, your own shovel much better than you know someone else's. Um, so now you break a shovel because you didn't realize, you know, how, how uh, much weaker that other person's shovel is than yours, you know, just by the different makes and models. Um, so, yeah, we'd, we'd recommend staying in regular shovel mode. You know, situations where if you're on the debris, uh, it's really soft debris and you're kind of wading around in it, uh, you might you might go into hole mode and and start moving the snow back, um, you know, in, in the snow conveyor corridor. Uh, and then uh, I think, you know, really for the, the hole mode is great for almost everything other than than avalanche search and rescue shoveling. Um, so, you know, when mm. I'm, when I'm heli ski guiding, I'll use it for cut and fill, um, for even, uh, for snow profiles, I'll use it in home mode for, for creating my initial excavation and then switch into regular shovel mode for doing my snowpack tests and, uh, and creating my pit walls. And, uh, and then for something like tree well rescue, I, you know, it's obviously in deep, soft snow. That's why they're they've lawn darted into, into the tree well and there's fluffy snow all around them. So consider going to the downhill side of that tree well and go into hoe mode and just carve away a big, a big gap of snow on the downhill side of the tree. And then hopefully they can just slide out of the branches straight downhill. Yep. So every avalanche rescue has its own nuances and it seems to me like you're kind of getting at the the core of what we need to focus on, I think, which is just practicing with your partners or your teammates and practicing for different variations of, of the scenario, right? Cause it's never, it's never going to be exactly what it looks like on the video or on paper. When you've watched people practice avalanche rescue, what are some common mistakes that you're seeing people do? Uh, yeah. So it's, it's the age old thing is there's gotta be someone in charge. Um, so even if you're, if you're a recreational party, if you are a professional group going in, uh, you still have to ha designate someone who's actually in charge there and somebody needs to take charge and pay attention to that. Um, and so if there is no leader and everybody's just trying to get the job done, that's where things can start to fall apart. Uh, communications is also a, a huge piece, um, in all rescue operations, all emergency response. And so if you can have things like the BCA link radios, with you, um, you know, they don't have to be on professional channels at that point. You know, you, you want to have communications out to the outside world for getting, getting SAR team response to you. So figure that out, you know, whether that's VHF radio or that's, um, uh, cell phone or some sort of satellite communication device. And they're becoming more and more common to have, and really a, a best practice to have probably at least two communication styles of devices with you. Um, and then, uh, um, you know, like a radio and a sat device or a cell phone, if you're in cell service and a, and a radio or that sort of thing. And that, yeah, communications, um, if you can talk to each other, 
So imagine a scenario like this has actually happened where it's really windy out or you get spread out um, when the avalanche occurs and you're looking for, you think one missing person and there's two of you on the surface. You can, one person's up at the top, one person's kind of more in the middle of the debris and you don't know where your buddy is. You can say on the radio, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna start searching from here down. You search from where you are down to me. And then as soon as you get, somebody gets a signal, you can notify the other the other searcher so that you're you're not wasting time looking for where they're not so communications are, are you know internal uh and then external communications both are um both things that should be utilized and i find they're not often practiced enough like even when i go teach uh you know i do afsar training with with patrol groups they don't actually practice taking an initial avalanche call and and the initial comms or the comms throughout. They just kind of you know assume that that would happen. So why not why not practice that? Say okay, an avalanche has happened. What are we going to do? Just just that alone. How are we going to communicate between us? How are we going to communicate out? Um, that that really uh, gets over probably eighty percent of the hurdles that people have in working in a group in that way. Hmm. When I when I witness people practicing avalanche rescue, it seems like oftentimes people don't use a big enough area. And so what I mean by that is that they're starting their avalanche transceiver search when they already have a signal. And so talk about some of the things that need to be taken into account with multiple rescuers um, if you're actually searching an avalanche path that's large and you need multiple searchers to cover the whole path. What are some things that can go wrong in terms of lining out those, those multiple rescuers? Yeah. So searching in parallel. So team search is uh, something that BCAs uh, spend a bit of time on recently. So you can go look at, uh, at the description of that on the BCA website and Basically, you have to communicate and you have to work together so that you're not too close, you're not too far apart because you don't want to miss any signals. You line up across a slope, either going down the slope or up the slope, and uh, and pay attention to your zone or your lane, as we're calling it. And uh, and then when somebody gets a signal, move move into it and communicate with each other. Like I've got a signal. I'm at I'm at forty. I'm at twenty. I'm at thirty. I'm at I'm at 10 all the way down and then the other people know what's going on and then they can not do what we're calling is kids soccer where they're kind of all right at the ball <laughs> there and nobody's actually thinking about the, the strategic rest of the field side of things. And so uh, then you could say, okay, well, what do you, what do you need? You know, these two people are going to come help, you know, shovel and probe and the rest of us are going to fill in the spaces um, still not beyond the search range of your transceiver for, for your search strip width and, uh, and carry on searching. That's especially important if maybe it's a, another party that's coming to, to the scene, right? That didn't exactly have the whole picture of what happened and how many people were involved, right? You'd come across ski tracks entering into a crown, uh, multiple ski tracks, and it's kind of a chaotic scene that you come upon. And it's, it's super important to make sure that the whole uh, debris field is covered by a uh, transceiver search, right? Yeah, and it's it's 
Um, there have been a number of incidents where people spend time in a, a lobe of the debris that goes, you know, because they can obviously run quite far and wide and all over the place and through the trees and into gullies and multiple gullies. And they spend too much time in one area. Um, and then that that speaks to yeah not covering the search area uh, and then also getting sucked in by things like interference. Um, so, so being really aware of that. And to go back to the training piece is uh, during training and, and real uh, responses, there's a lot of potential to, to have interference or um, somebody who is uh, what we're calling a rogue signal on the surface. And they have not gone to send or they've, they've auto-reverted to send and now they're getting picked up and they're a moving target. Um, and yeah, it's it's very, very confusing. And that the similar type of thing can happen with interference where you're getting numbers and arrows and it's not really making sense. And that could happen on an area of the debris that you haven't even that that you're covering and focused on and keep you there for way too long. So that that early recognition of things like rogue signals. So somebody sending on the surface that has lots of air, one of the searchers are sending by accident and uh and then also the the whole trying to deal with interference and so we we should all practice with that type of stuff like you know it, it's not bad if somebody you know on purpose leaves their transceiver on send um once in a while during during training and uh and just sort of sees what happens and then you can have a discussion about it afterwards seems like this speaks to the importance of having some sort of leader, as, as you talked about before, accident site commander, that can kind of have a big picture on what's going on. And, and then especially if you have radios, uh, again, radios could um, introduce some electronic interference, but it can cut down on a lot of confusion uh, between rescuers given, you know, uh, terrain influences or weather influences that might be affecting communications yeah so you want to practice with the stuff that you have and and determine if satellite devices are giving you any kind of interference um, before you actually have the incident or if you're on snowmobiles uh, is it going to work for you to actually do some of the initial uh, signal search on your snowmobile or not because you're picking up too much interference off of electronics that are around you um if it works, that's great. If it doesn't work, well, you know the limitations now. So something I often think about and try and uh, try and talk to students in avalanche courses about is if you're skiing or riding with just one other person and they get caught in an avalanche, you're high up on the slope, maybe ridge top, and you you have a, a cell signal there, um, but it's just you and the person that just got caught in an avalanche. And you think you're going to lose cell service as you drop down um, to conduct your rescue. What's your advice in that situation? I mean, obviously, you want to get that person out of the snow as soon as possible, but you also kind of want to call the cavalry. You don't know what you're going to have to be dealing with once you uh, uncover that, that subject. So what's your advice there? Yeah, so if you have uh, communications out, whether you're on a ridge and you've got cell service or better radio service um, or clearer sight of the sky for satellite calls, I would suggest doing, be prepared to do a call out right away. You're not spending a lot of time doing that, um, but nobody knows you're having an issue um, until you tell them. 
so as long as it's not going to take very long or you can maybe get part of the group started um, with a search and uh, and one person is is doing the initial call out for help to the outside, it's probably a good thing to do. Um, but if you're, say, down in the valley bottom and you know if you just, you know, went 20 minutes up to the ridge, you could get a cell cell um, coverage and get a get a call or a text out uh, for help. Uh, then you got to think about the survivability curve, and really that twenty minutes is uh, is thing, things are really going downhill for the chances of survival for the person or people under the snow. So at that point, you have to kind of abandon calling out for help and realize you're going to sort it out as best you can using your training and and keep your wits about you to actually get the people out of the snow or the one person or whoever it is under the snow out, and then figure out how to call out for help. Sure. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about probing techniques. Um, what's best practice these days? Is it a spiral? Is it a square? What's the spacing between probing? Uh, break it down for us, Jordy. Yeah, so you're, you're talking about pinpoint probing here. So you've done your your uh, you've acquired the signal with your transceiver. You've moved in through your coarse search. Now you've done your fine search, and now you want to probe. So we're probing 90 degrees to the snow surface. Um, because that is the shortest line from our transceiver to the sending transceiver um, as we're searching. So 90 degrees to the snow surface. And then it doesn't really matter if you want, if some people like going in squares and some people like they think in circles. Um, so 30 centimeter spacing maximum and uh, moving out from that in either a square grid spiral or a circular cinnamon bun style um, round spiral. But either way, um, do that and stick with that. Uh, your your distance ometer, I call it, in your hand, your transceiver is telling you how deeply they're buried when you have it very close to the snow surface. And they're, at, they're pretty accurate at that point, right? Um, the closer you get to the buried subject, the more accurate they are. If it's telling you 1.5 meters, then you're going to want to probe a little bit deeper than that. Um, you know, probably an extra 20% or so. Um, more than than they are on on your distance ometer away from you and uh and stick with that probing until you're probably at least the burial depth indication amount out from where you started probing um, so if it's saying 1.5 meters on your screen at your lowest number with your fine search with your transceiver then probe out to 1.5 meters in all directions uh, from where you initially started probing before you go back to your transceiver and it'll probably tell you about the same thing again. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, I guess that in a nutshell is the probing and, and really, yeah, if you're more comfortable thinking in a square 30 centimeter pattern than a circular, uh, common mistakes are probing, um, in that spiral fashion and then not moving your feet to actually make the spiral go out all the way around so you're not actually probing where you're standing uh, we commonly see that uh, and yeah not probing potentially not probing deep enough because you have that distance indication on your on your transceiver and then using two-handed technique so uh, your lower hand is kind of like a guide hand and your upper hand is the one that's actually holding the probe tight to plunge it in and you don't need to you know, it's not like you're spearfishing and looking for blood on the end of the stick when you pull it back up. Uh, so, you know, just uh, very measured um, probing, uh, you know, in terms of the force 
um, but not not just jabbing it in there. And the reality is if you break that probe by not having a, that guide hand on to keep it from deflecting if it does hit a chunk of snow or or um, a log or you know something that's in there, um, you're gonna if you break or bend your probe, it's not going to be of any use to you or it's going to be quite a bit shortened at that point. Let's talk a little bit about deep burials. So what's considered a deep burial in in avalanche rescue and and what are some ways to work? through that yeah so there's there's been evolving school of thought on that you know the survivability curve on the stats that um we've been using which are a bit outdated uh are kind of speak like some of the, a lot of the stats we're using in canada right now are are only up until about 2007 when we when the shoveling method changed and so i feel anecdotally that people are surviving deeper burials because the shoveling is better, faster, and, and overall less effort to get down to them with less people. And so, you know, what we used to call a deep burial was 1.5 meters statistically, because that's where, where the survivability curve falls off um, in the statistics that we're using. But I think, like I said, anecdotally, I think people are surviving deeper burials. And that's... Um, because of the better shoveling. And so I would call a deep burial now deeper than your probe is long. So you cannot get a probe strike. Um, and hmm. because pretty much all the transceivers on the market will do a very good job of, you know, to that three meter deep, three and a half meter deep, depending on how long your probe is, um, length um, of doing a fine search to getting you pretty close to where the subject is buried. Um, but it's when uh, they're deeper than that that you need to think about using a, a deep burial technique. Uh, the deep burial te technique that's the most simplified and works with all transceiver types, whether they're digital or analog capable, um, is the, uh, we're calling it the diamond method. And basically what you do is you, you come in with your uh, transceiver initially searching. You determine that the lowest number that you can get in your initial find search is is greater than your probe is long. And at that point, at about the lowest number, uh, so say you're getting a 4.5 as your lowest number, put some shovelers, if you have them, about half that burial depth down slope of you. So this, in that case, would be about two to three meters down slope of you. If there's no slope, just in any direction from where you had about the low lowest number of 4.5. And now get them shoveling um, to start a snow conveyor corridor. So they just line up at that two and a half, three meters away from you and start shoveling because it's going to be a long snow conveyor corridor for a deep burial. And so this will reduce your ramp angle by getting that going and it gets them out of your way. And then what you want to do is uh, do the diamond method, which is basically looking for the edge of the plateau of like numbers. And so if the numbers are all in the fours and the low fives, you, you just go one direction. I usually start across a slope in my methodology and, uh, and look for the number to either jump. And that means you are now off that edge of that plateau of like numbers. So it jumps probably a couple meters or more, or you're, if it goes up inc incrementally as you're going side to side, uh, then probably two meters on your screen above that lowest number on that axis. And then go back, so mark those two places where you, you fall off the edge of the, of the areas of like numbers, uh, that plateau, and then go to the middle of those two points that you've marked, 
at the outside, go to the middle, and then go 90 degrees to that. Um, not turning your transceiver at that point either. It's just like a fine search method. And uh, look for it to either jump, make a big jump. Now you know you're off the at edge of like numbers or uh, at least two meters above what's your lowest number is on that line. And then go to the center of that shape, not where those points cross, kind of like that where, you know, you might have a kite shape, you might have um, a square. Um, you don't know what you're going to come up with because you're, you're just, you don't know which way the transceiver is sending to have those flux lines that you are crossing or not crossing up on the surface. And, and then go to the middle of that polygon that you've created. So when you kind of look in all directions, you're, you're in, the, in the center of it. Now move your shovelers to 1.5 meters to the uphill side of you. Uh, and they shovel through that area that is the center of your diamond. Uh, and that's, that's basically you're just trying to, by finding the center of that shape, that, that diamond shape or kite shape or square, you're, uh, you're um, reducing your chance of being quite far off from where they're buried. Uh, and as you dig down now, uh, so start one, one and a half meters to the opposite side of where you had them shoveling or the uphill side, if it's sloped, uh, shoveling through there, no more than one and a half, two meters wide at that point at the center of your diamond. And every meter that you go down, do a, uh, or maybe even two meters initially, if it's quite a deep burial, um, do a, do a fine search in the bottom of your excavation corridor and just fine tune which way you're shoveling. Uh, and then once you can get down within probe striking distance on your transceiver, then get a probe strike. And now just put your shovelers standard shoveling method right down the probe, um, to the probe tip. All right. Yeah. Good stuff. And if, if you did get lost along that description from Jordy, again, uh, reference the videos that are in the show notes, um, from BCA, that'll help you along your way there. Jordy, keeping your avalanche transceiver in your pocket or in your harness what, what's your take yeah caleb this is <laughs> yeah this is something that i've been working on the, my whole career so i started wearing it in the harness with my yellow peeps 457 optifinder it had light on the front so it was fancier than all the others that were out uh pure analog transceiver and then, you know, I, so it came in a harness, so I put it in the harness and wore it on my chest. And then I started thinking as I got more experience, well, I, you know, I kind of want to have this thing more accessible. And so I'm going to put it in my pocket. That seemed to be the trend of what people were doing. And then I, I went to more accidents and heard more about more incidents and about transceivers being banged around uh, and about uh, transceivers being ripped out of even the, the uh, sewn pockets that are supposed to be made for transceivers. Uh, or switching from transmit to to search inadvertently because they're getting banged around. Um, yeah, all those potentials. And then with transceivers that have motion sensing in them, uh, all the manufacturers are saying you're negating that motion sensing technology if you have it in a leg pocket because your leg's not going to be moving like your chest would be under the snow. And then on top of that, probably the main reason uh, is that... Uh, if somebody's good with their transceiver, people are pretty good with transceiver searches nowadays, and the transceivers are quite good. So they're going to get you pretty darn close to where that buried subject is, where their transceiver is buried. And I want that closer to my airway if I'm the buried subject. So by putting it on my chest, it's it's closer to me. 
And another reason is if you are taking a ride in an avalanche, you kind of forget you have legs and appendages. You're just trying to protect the important bits, your, your head, your neck, your back, your chest, your heart, lungs, brain. And so you're, you're in that fight scenario. Uh, you have the added benefit of protecting your transceiver uh, from, from trauma. And yes, it can still get hit and banged about on your chest, um, but not because you're not trying to save, save yourself from that trauma to your chest. Um, so probably another good reason to wear it there. And then if you end up on the surface after you've been pulled down through the trees or in an avalanche on the, and you're on the surface, you are uh, probably more likely uh, to have a transceiver that's functioning if you, you have to use your transceiver to go search for your missing buddies who, who are under the snow. Hmm. Yeah, all really good points there. Again, like I said, I go I go back and forth and... Um, but I think it I think it does make a lot of sense to to wear it on your chest, even if it's just the the fact that it's closer to your airway, right? Yep, yeah, it, it makes a it would make a big difference. Think of somebody uh, getting a probe strike on your leg and then digging down to your leg and then hold your breath for the time it takes them to cave to your airway. It's just that little that extra could make all the difference. Um, you know, but having said that, you know, if people want to carry it in a, in a pocket, um, you know, that's fine too. Just, uh, think about what you're doing and, and realize there, yeah, in certain scenarios, there might be some consequences of that. Yeah, sure. A lot of times I see people put them in pockets and kind of have the, maybe it's not a pocket that actually has a lanyard and a, maybe an interior mesh pocket within that pocket. And I see pockets halfway open with, you know, the shock cord drawstring going up to your belt loop. And, and it's like, take, really take the time to make sure that your, um, your transceiver is secured on your body and, and, and think about the forces that could happen when an avalanche, if an avalanche occurred and, and, and could rip that transceiver right out of your halfway open pocket. So definitely some things to think about there. I was hoping you could Talk a little bit about some case studies or a case study um, about avalanche rescue where things really went right or things went wrong um, and some salient points that we could all learn from from that such case study. Yeah, well, just in terms of the whole risk side of things, you know, that's probably one of our biggest uncertainties with, with avalanche, SAR, is, you know, is there going to be another avalanche uh, or are we working in really hazardous terrain um, where you, you have to really keep your, your wits about you? And so I'm, I'm thinking, I, I'm proposing to the Avalanche Association in Canada that we create a professional development session for technical AVSAR, um, which, you know, not, is not mandatory, but uh, just so we can put together some of these techniques that we, we end up using, but we, we end up kind of just making it up as we go when things get more technical. And so that would be in, uh, in steep, steep hazardous terrain in glaciated terrain, um, in an area where there's, there's water bodies, um, which does happen right with, with avalanches around lakes and creeks and frozen, frozen ice, um, all those types of things, um, or, or extensive hazard overhead hazard, um, to deal with. And so one, one case study um, that I, I was, an incident I was part of was actually a summer avalanche uh, at Mount Robson, uh, in Mount Robson Park near Jasper Park. 
Um, it's uh, the highest highest uh, peak in British Columbia, and it's uh, uh, it's a big rig. It's it's not to be taken lightly, and uh, there's been a number of incidents there. You know, climbing accidents, avalanches over the years, and so we got called there when I was working with the the Parks Canada uh, SAR team in in Jasper, and this was in late late July, early August, two thousand five, and there was uh, there were two climbers that uh, that had logged logged out at the ranger station climbed the peak um, and an avalanche was reported below the cloud base um, on uh, the north face of Mount Robson. And so the uh, an RCMP, a police helicopter, went in uh, to initially confirm that there, there were subjects noted because the, the ranger who had glassed the slope and noted the avalanche um, coming out below uh, the clouds on the, the base of the north face of Robson there um, he uh, he thought he saw either rocks or people in the avalanche debris, um, and this is down onto the top of the Bird Glacier and uh, like huge crevasses everywhere and really broken Serac Fall um, area. And so yeah, the RCMP helicopter flies by, determines there's two subjects not moving on the surface, partially buried, um, and so we got called in to go there. And so we, uh, from Jasper Park, who does um, by a memorandum of understanding technical rescue for the BC Park system there at Mount Robson. And so when we went in, we we brought a paramedic with us uh, who was partly for um, in case we needed to assess subjects or do any medical interventions. And he had higher level medical care than us. Uh, and also in case something happened to us, it's nice to have a paramedic around too. And so uh, that paramedic had trained to do heli sling rescue with us, um, and we we went in with two uh, two teams of two um, to the staging area, staged around the corner from the north face. And when we got on site, uh, we decided to sling in and do an initial check, um, but not have the helicopter far away. Um, you know, we we couldn't see above us there. It was a time of a lot of snow coming through the summer, the early summer and into the middle of the summer, and now it's turned quite warm. And we know the avalanche danger has risen, um, and we're trying to get the message out to the public um, in the national park system, you know, for all of our visitors saying, hey, uh, there's there's heightened avalanche danger even though it's the middle of summer. And so we were we were well aware of, of elevated avalanche danger. It was warm, but not not so warm that we were, um, yeah, that we didn't decide to go in. Uh, we slung in, we slung in, in, uh, glacier travel mode, um, with a rope, um, with probably 20 meters of rope between the two of us. And we did that because there's crevasses in the area. So one of us got dropped off at the two non-moving subjects. And then we used the radio comms to, uh, for me to get dropped off as I strung out the rope between myself and my, um, my rescue partner. And so now we're, we have some, some distance between us in case one of us falls through a crevasse, uh, bridge. But, uh, the downside of that is only one of us is at the subjects and able to do any of the work there. And so we determined, uh, both were pulseless. Uh, unfortunately they'd, uh, fallen together, roped up. Uh, we think we never saw the summit, but we think they were probably on the summit ridge and maybe fell through a cornice in the, in the flat light because it was basically zero visibility um, up up the mountain from above us there, up to the summit. 
yeah, so we we decided to try and because they, they were both pretty much on the surface to try and get the subjects out. And so we called the helicopter back with a long line. Uh, we got one subject clipped on with his climbing harness and slung him out to the staging area, deceased. And uh, and then the clouds dropped and I realized I was kind of the watch person there because I didn't have that much else to do. I couldn't actually do any shoveling because I had to stay away from my my climbing, my, my rescue partner. And so uh, I said, we got to go. And so we left the other subject there uh, on the snow surface uh, and and beetled down the glacier there around big crevasses in glacier travel mode, got picked up by the helicopter below the cloud base that was dropping and uh, on the sling line. And then we uh, went back to the staging area and flew all out to the, the to the warden, uh, to the ranger station by the highway. And at that point, we decided we weren't going back in. Uh, we still had a ranger up there across the valley spotting for us. And, uh, and yeah, it just seemed like it was the, the, it was starting to rain lightly. The weather was pretty warm. It's getting, moving into the afternoon now. And so we decided not to go in and within probably about 45 minutes of that decision, uh, a size, I don't know, three and a half, four avalanche overran the site and swept the other subject away, um, and into a crevasse and, uh, he's, he's never been recovered. Um, to date. And then another even larger avalanche came down and ran over, over and that second avalanche's debris and down for, further down the Berg Glacier. Um, so it just highlighted, uh, we kind of got, you know, there's some, uh, I, th I think an element of luck and I'll take luck over good planning most days of the week, but you don't want to throw out the good planning either. <laughs> so use a good planning, but if you get lucky, that's great. <laughs> And uh, we did. Um, yeah, it was through, I think, some reasonable decision making and planning and risk management there um, or risk uh, risk acceptance, I guess. And uh, yeah, once we determined the subjects were deceased, we decided to just quickly get them out of there. And then that wasn't going to work to get both of them out. And so we abandoned that idea. And uh, yeah, it was it was overall a pretty close call for for me and the team there. You know, and that certainly highlights just keeping in mind the big picture, right? And not getting too target fixated um, when you're in those sorts of situations. And of course, this is a, a professional uh, search and rescue organization that you were a part of with many moving parts, um, but certainly some salient points there for just the recreational user in the backcountry might have to perform a partner companion rescue. Yeah, that's the biggest decision, right? An avalanche has happened and now you have to decide, are you going in or are you not going in? And yeah, if if you feel it is unsafe to go in because of things like glaciated terrain, because of it's it's the debris is out onto lake ice and there's water coming through the snow, um, or it there seems like there's unknown or or visible overhead hazard. Uh, then, yeah, the the biggest thing in any rescue operation, whether it's a it's a personal party out there or it's a it's a uh, a rescue team, is to keep yourself safe, and you have to do that. Because then, if you are not, if you're wrong, um, and you're you're involved, then all the all everything's going to focus on you now, and not the initial people that were were in the avalanche. So, right, well. Jordy, thanks for sharing that that experience. What are your thoughts on how to 
how to sort of continue to change the culture of just one and done avalanche rescue courses, right? Like this is a something that takes a lifetime to practice and master. And I think in the past people have just thought, oh yeah, I took a avalanche rescue course 10 years ago. I'm good to go. So how do we, how do we change the culture within our industry around continual, uh, continuing education? Well, I think all you have to do is at any point, whether it's the start of the season, the middle of the season, the end of the season, off season, because uh, avalanches can happen in the summertime too, um, as we just talked about, it's to fast forward to an avalanche has happened. And are you going to feel like you know what you should be doing? And so if, if you ask yourself that question constantly through every year, every season, and the answer at some point is no, then practice because what you don't the, the huge stress that you're going to put on yourself if you are not prepared and you don't really know what to do um, in a given situation is is going to be gigantic uh, so, and you don't want to wear that right um, you you know you st it still might not be a positive outcome but uh, you, you want to go into a situation that's an emergency and feel like you're you're fairly prepared for it and so just like the Connaught Creek accident in 2003, um, this speaks to that. I, I was, um, I, I call that the biggest avalanche accident I've ever gone to um, in terms of responding to it. But uh, it, it was also the first. And so, you know, I had, I had 50 rescuers, eight helicopters, three avalanche dog teams, uh, a number of bystanders that were helping out. And the, the reason why, you know, it was, it was a horrible accident, but it went fairly well from the response side of things because we had trained for it. And, and I, I felt like I had trained for it for a number of years and yeah, things didn't go perfectly. They never do. Um, but I, I felt like we worked really well as a team together and we kept our, our site safety, um, to quite a high level and we did get everybody saved that we, we could. And so that was because we had planned and prepared and trained for it. So yeah, just ask yourself constantly the question, if an avalanche happened now on this, on this trip at this point in the season, would I feel like I would know what to do and be solid on it? Do I know how to drive my transceiver? They're getting more and more complex, the transceivers in general, and uh, people are spending a lot of money to buy items, these transceivers that they actually don't know how to use in, in a given situation. So whatever you have, all these transceivers work quite well, but know how to use it. Know how to use that stick that's in your, in your pack and probe. Know how to shovel and have a discussion with your group ahead of time um, about how it's all going to go down if, if things do go sideways. You have a podcast coming out or you're part of a team that's creating a, a new podcast. Talk about delivering adventure and uh, what, what's that all about? Yeah, so myself and Chris Capio, uh, he's a hiking guide based out of Whistler, BC. Uh, it's actually Chris's brainchild, uh, and I'm I'm along for the ride. Um, but we're uh, we're we've become podcast hosts uh, just this fall here, summer and fall, doing interviews. It's called Delivering Adventure, and we have a uh, if you search for Delivering Adventure, you'll you'll find our trailer. Uh, we've got a, a quite a long list of, of big names in the um, adventure delivery industry world. Um, 
we're talking to folks uh, who are uh, running surf schools and who are uh, mountain guides and uh, who are ski instructors. And yeah, uh, we're, we're uh, trying to basically, the premise is, if you, uh, if you want to be better able to deliver adventure to others or experience it yourself um, in even a recreational way, uh, listen to these, these, uh, this group of um, amazing uh, adventure instructors, guides um, who, are, uh, who are out there doing this stuff every day, all day. And they've, got, uh, they've got stories and tips and tricks for you that'll uh, help make your, your time out there being, uh, being more safe and enjoyable. Yeah, just, just before we hit record here, you were recounting some of the folks that you've had on so far. Um, just give us a little highlight reel, some big names out there. Yeah, we're, uh, we've interviewed and we'll have, uh, podcast shows, uh, with Will Gad, Sarah Hunnikin, Lindsay Dyer, Barry Blanchard, Greg Hill. Um, yeah, whole, whole pile of, uh, folks that are very, very experienced and, uh, have been doing this for a long time. And, and when's this going to start rolling out? When is it going to be released? Uh, it looks like sometime in no- November here, November 2022, we should be launching, um, hopefully before Christmas. Great. Well, not to be missed. I'm, I'm certainly excited to check those out when they, when they roll out. Well, uh, I appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing some of your experiences throughout your career um, and telling us about delivering adventure. I'm definitely excited to check that out. And I hope you have a great rest of the fall and, and start to the winter. Thanks, Caleb. It's great to meet you online here. And it's, uh, it's an awesome program that you have. All right. Appreciate it. Cheers. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that interview. And as I mentioned during the interview, if you go to the show notes of this episode, um, you'll get some links to the great videos put out by Jordy and BCA with the Strike Team Shoveling video series there. So make sure you check that out. We've also listed some resources uh, to some of the courses that Jordy was mentioning on the interview there. Music on today's episode was provided by Ketza with permission from the artist. You heard the tracks Hip Hop Instrumental 2 and Snow Top. You can find more of their tracks at ketza.uk. Our artwork was created by Mike T, you demand T, and this episode was produced by myself, Caleb Merrill. Make sure to follow us on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and that Instagram account is really the best way to keep up to date with current releases of new episodes from the Avalanche Hour Podcast. So go over and give us a follow, tag us in your photos, in your early season ventures, or maybe your attendance at a regional snow and avalanche workshop. Give us a tag, give us a follow. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you listen to it on, and go over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Take two minutes, give me some stars, and leave a, leave a short review. I really enjoy getting those reviews. If you've been a long-time listener and you're looking for a way to help support this project, you can head over to our somewhat neglected website, theavalanchehour.com, 
And at the bottom of that page, you'll find a QR code or a link to a PayPal account. And you can donate a couple bucks a month, a one-time donation, whatever you got kicking around, um, and help keep this podcast afloat. Appreciate you. As I've mentioned in the past, we've got many collaborators here with the Avalanche Hour podcast, uh, a great array of people from around the world that are finding great conversations to share with you within the snow and avalanche industry. So I know for this season I've been kind of hogging most of the episodes here in the last month and a half or so, but uh, trust me, coming up we've got some great content from some of the other guest hosts that will be featured throughout the rest of the season. So those folks are working hard to get their interviews together and we'll be releasing them out throughout the rest of the season. Make sure to tune in to the next episode on November 15th where we highlight an interview with the directors and producers and Jim Plain from the film Buried. If you haven't seen the film yet, it will be available November 8th on Amazon Video and Apple TV. So be sure to check the film out and be sure to check out our great interview uh, coming to you soon. And until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.